Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Philida Anam Ira to discuss her work as a soul carer for the dying and grieving. Among many other topics, Philida discusses being with the mystery of life and death, finding work that nourishes the soul, how everybody dies on their own terms, and the need for ritual. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Also, be sure to hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Philida Anam Ira, a former Irish nun, as well as grandmother and therapist, who trained with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and has worked extensively with the sick and dying. Through her decades of hospice work, Philida has revived the ancient Celtic tradition of watching with the dying and traveling with the soul after death. Drawing on her Celtic background, she integrates the wisdom of her ancestors with modern knowledge of the death process. She shows how a peaceful transition for the leaving person is possible and how this process can be consciously supported for relatives or friends. She offers conscious living, conscious dying retreats in Europe and gives talks on children and dying to nurses and palliative care workers. She is author of several books, including her most recent publication, A Celtic Book of Dying and the Last Ecstasy of Life. She is also a songwriter and has released music CDs and teaches the old Celtic rituals and guha, Irish morning sounds or mantras. Philida, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. It's lovely to be with you. I appreciate being with you. Yes, and I so appreciate your time and am very much looking forward to speaking with you. Uh, I thought that we would begin uh, reading your books. Um, I recognize that you have lived an amazing life um, in many ways, and it seems that you were born to do this work. (sighs) Uh, you know, you were born into a family that was experiencing profound grief. And I was curious, do you think that contributed to the path you took in this life? Oh, Nick, you know, I, you know, when when you're just living your life, and you're not giving much thought to why am I doing this? Or is this satisfying me? Is this what I really want to be doing? Especially when people would have asked me questions like, why do you want to work in such a depressive environment? People dying all the time. I think it's only been in the last maybe 20 years that I've really looked at the, the whole idea of choosing that way of, of living, being with the dying. And as you say rightly, Nick, uh, I think I can, I'm, no, I'll, I'll rephrase that. I know I've come into the world to do exactly that because I've had so much joy from doing it. So much pain also, so much grief, working with my own grief, knowing that I can be a container for other people's grief and suffering. And you know something? I think I had that desire from a very very young age. I wanted to be some kind of, I don't know, musical instrument maybe through which the pain and the grief of people could just flow through and create music. Mm. I thought about this a couple of weeks ago 
And I realized that nowadays, you know, can we, can I be a container for the sufferings of the world and not allow my presence to be affected by it, but just be that, that instrument, if you like. And um, I believe I came to do that, Nick. It feels right. It feels beautiful. And there is joy in it for me. If there is no joy in something for me, I just don't do it. If I don't love what I'm doing, I don't do it, Nick. So I give up librarianship. I give up Montessori teaching because it wasn't satisfying my soul. It was satisfying my ego. And that was great. And I'd like my ego to be satisfied as well. But there was something richer and fuller for me. And Nick, I found that. Yeah, that's quite beautiful. And I can relate to needing to feel passionate and joy about what I do. Um, what led you onto this path? I think that, you know, I already asked, you know, were you born into it? Um, but you had other things. You started as a nun, you were a nun, and then you left and got married and raised children. Um, uh, I know that you had a near-death experience in 1973. Uh, so can you speak to your path? What, what, what led you to where you are now? Okay, so we started, as you say, by entering a convent. Um, gosh, yes, that, that, that was strange because, you know, in my youth, Nick, I was quite a beautiful looking young woman. Now, why would a beautiful young woman decide to hand over her life to a man she didn't really ever meet, and that was Jesus Christ? But for me, it was an amazing escape from a very painful life of anorexia, of trying to be a good person and yet carrying the cross of because of my sins, a beautiful man had to die. And I believed that because I was told that at five years of age, I was a sensitive child. I cried about what I did to poor Jesus. So later on in life, having gone through quite a lot of stuff within the family dynamics, I thought, I'm just going to be a nun. I'm going to escape this bad, awful world, this bad Eve that I was told I was. And of course, I was told, you know, you better be careful as you get older, Philidor. You're, you're good looking. And there would be no bad boys if there were no bad girls. I was told that at boarding school with a nun. So I really tried to be so good that I, I actually hid anything that looked like me being a sexual being. I hid everything. I couldn't stand it. And so I gave my life to Jesus. Now Jesus was in heaven. I got the ring. I got the habit, but we didn't have to have sex. And this was wonderful. So I could go on with the habit, the habit of literally disappearing into uh, the Catholic Church never to be seen again, but to do good works and to look after people and what have you. And then I, I did something very strange, Nick. I went against all the conventions within my family dynamic, and I married a Protestant from Northern Ireland. My goodness, can you imagine that the rebel yeah. you see was there? The rebel was, was in the unconscious. The shadow had to come out, and thankfully it did beautifully. And then I spent 26 years in Northern Ireland in the Troubles, 
right. trying to rear two beautiful children. And of course, they were stigmatized because I was Catholic, their father was Protestant, they were bullied at school, they, they had a really rough time. We had to move house at one time at, in the morning, very early morning, I, we had a two-year-old child, we had to get out quickly because I was playing the piano and taking the choir on a Sunday morning in the Catholic church where we lived. And in the evening, I attended the Methodist church and did the same thing and got people singing, praising the Lord. And, and, that's, and that's good. Nothing against that as long as there's not an escapism from living life fully. So I, I, I was there in Northern Ireland. I buried many, many people. I went to many, many wakes. I had a deep grief that I was carrying myself at the time. And I, I just felt within myself there you know, there's something else going on here. What, what is it, Philida? And then, of course, Elizabeth Kubaros came to Northern Ireland in 1982. Mm. And I brought my young daughter along. And after the, her meeting, uh, I went to see her. And I just said, thank you for letting me know that a near-death experience was a real experience, nothing just that something that I just imagined. It was real and had its consequences in my life. And we talked a bit and she said, um, what do you do? And at that time, I was a yoga teacher. Hmm. And she said, you're a what? I said, a yoga teacher. She said, you'll be working with the dying, won't you? And I said, well, I'm kind of working with, with, with dying at the moment and my own internal dying to all that's going on with me. And she said, come and train with me. You might not succeed. Uh, you, you know, anything can happen to you because I'm tough. So I did. I did the training, and after five years of working on my own stuff, uh, trying to love my shadow back into my heart again and all that stuff, and then I started working with her in workshops in America, France, Europe, wherever. And we had workshops in Northern Ireland with my own people, and that was brilliant for me. That was great for me to be able to do that. But then um, I decided after 10 years that it's time that I kind of did something of my own, you know, what, what, what's this passion that I haven't met in me yet? And what is going to give me real joy? And then I decided, ah, oh, I'm going to start taking my own retreats. I'm going to give retreats on death and dying. And I'm going to ask people who are dying with cancer, will you come into my retreats? Will you tell us? Because that's the way Elizabeth did it. Let's have experience over theory. And that's the way I work. As I say to my students, I will never teach you something that I have not experienced. And that is the way I work. And then, of course, from then, Nick, I started working with the dying. And especially with children, I'm... I'm we're writing a book at the moment. Um, the title is, uh, Why Doesn't Mommy Open Her Eyes? And this was something a child had said to me. Philida, mommy won't open her eyes. And then we worked through, of course, that whole process of, of why can mommy not open her eyes? And we went through a lot. And that was beautiful. Being with this child, she taught me how to be natural with the dying as I am with you now, Nick. I, I, nothing in me has to change. And this is great. This is wonderful. I can be totally myself with my whatever, jewelry, 
whatever I want to, however I want to appear with them, because they will immediately know if I'm putting on an act or I'm being holy or I'm being good or whatever. So am I going on a bit? Do you remember I'm Oh, Irish? no, no, you're, oh. it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> Just yeah. keep talking. Yeah, well, no, I appreciate it. And I think it's so important because, especially for children, because, you know, death is, kind of an abstraction in some ways. I mean, it's very concrete and real, but as a child, I think it takes a while. I think the, you know, I can only speak to my own experience, but I remember the first time I really contemplated death was when I was about eight years old. Um, I remember my grandfather had built this um, uh, tire swing. So it was a tire, you know, hanging from a tree. And it was just one hot August summer afternoon. And I remember just sitting in this tire swing and the way the tree was, you couldn't really swing. All you could really do is like bounce against the trunk of the tree. <laughs> but I was sitting there in this hot, humid August afternoon, just sort of bouncing against the tree. And I had this image of my own tombstone. And that was when I first really started thinking about death and that there was an end to this life. Um, you know, and maybe that was early. I don't know. Uh, I know some of my friends, you know, also had these sorts of experiences, uh, maybe around the same age, but I think it's important, you know, especially for children who hadn't had that kind of experience yet to have a way to express it and have someone who can work with them. Just sit with them and I learn from children. I don't teach them anything. I've learned so much from the children that I've worked with who had cancer, whose mm -hmm. siblings were dying. I've, I've asked them questions. I've asked them to tell me. And I, I, I'm very happy with saying things like, I actually don't know, but isn't it a great mystery? Can yeah. we draw it? Can we paint it together? And I'm not going to let you see what I'm drawing. And don't you, I won't see what you're doing. And let's come together and just look at this mystery that neither mm -hmm. of us really fully understand. And children love that because mm -hmm. i'm not pretending to know right. but it was lovely that the, the whole episode of mommy won't open her eyes because then we were able to say what color are mommy's eyes tell me about them have you photographs of mommy what did her eyes say to you can you remember mommy's voice how did she sound can you remember things she said to you and this is beautiful because you're keeping that alive in the child. And then she can sit in the bed and put her hand again. I still won't open her eyes. That's right. Mommy's eyes will not open again. And how do you feel about that? And do you remember when your Robert died, the same thing happened? But of course, it's not the same. But to give the child an idea, you see, we prevent children from looking at death by not discussing it and by not talking about it at school. At school is the, is, is the place, you know, the gerbil dies. What do we do? We have a ritual. We cry. What was his name? What are the things he did together? We'll sit around and talk about the gerbil. What was it like to feel him? And he's not, how does he feel now? Well, let's go and see. Oh, what's different about the gerbil today? Oh, and each child can tell you. And can we draw the gerbil? Oh, beautiful stuff. Children will lead us if we can just have that what patience to wait on a child, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that quite a bit. And it 
it seems to me that it speaks to also the, there's this denial uh, this avoidance of death. And I am trying to find, I know that I have this in my notes somewhere where you, you, you talk about not avoiding these things. Um, I'm trying to find the actual, it'll come to me later, I'm sure. But um, it seems that we're not just in denial about death, but we're also in denial about grieving. And, you know, one of the things while reading your book, you talk about this grieving process and you answer this question of how long does it take? And I loved your answer. You're like, it takes as long as it takes. And that most therapists or professionals will say that the normal time is two years. And I wanted to share with you that when my mother died, I remember the uh, workers, uh, there was a therapist, you know, at the hospital and whatnot. And what they told me is like, okay, if in six months, you're still grieving, you need to <laughs> find help. And I'm like, six months. That's kind of silly. And it, it also always has struck me that here, when someone dies, you get like a week off of work. And then you're expected to go back right away. This is this is very sad because you know Elizabeth talked about denial being the first stage, mm -hmm. and it's for me it's also that internal language that goes on with denial. It can't be me. It's not me. It's somebody else. It has to be maybe somewhere that ha somebody has the same name, but it's not my John or it's not my so-and-so. And I found this in Northern Ireland, especially when there would be a bomb and somebody was, few people actually would be blown up in the bomb. And I remember a woman saying to me, Nick, she said, Philida, I know that the name is so-and-so, but you know, there are many so-and-sos in our town or in our, in, our, in our county. And it's not my husband. I know it's not my husband. I would know if it was, and it's not. Mm. Now, I didn't sit her down and say, you know, sweetheart, it is. Mm. I just stayed in that presence and let her rant and rave and let her get into any kind of rage or anger she needed to be in. But it's not my husband. And don't you dare tell me it is. So if you can just sit with that, sit with that, and, and hear her saying, I hate God. Mm. Can you bear, can you sit with that and hear the prayer in that? Hear the trust that I actually can say it loudly. I hate God, Philida. And they're waiting for me to say, well, you know, that's not. So I said, yeah, of course you hate God. You're really hurting. You're really in pain. Of, do you want to say it again, I'll just sit here with you. And they can get up and scream, I hate God. And to me, you know, I don't know about you, Nick, if you have children or not, but I know what, if my child can say to me, I hate you, mom. To me, that's a prayer of immaculate trust. Because in this moment, I can say this to you, somehow knowing you're not going to despise me. You're not going to reject me. It's my pain that's speaking. It's my hurt that's speaking. Yeah. So yes, yes, yeah. denial is a. But we we deny we deny so much in, <laughs> in life, you know. 
you know, I, I hear women saying, well, my husband left me, but he'll be back, you know. I'm just, I, th I think he just needs a break and I think it'll be fine and I'm sure he'll be grand and I'm keeping his clothes there and that, but I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm sure we'll be back again. Mm. You know, we'll do anything but face the pain of the heart. Yeah. You know, that, the, the, the heart's the lonely place to be when there's grief. You know, like it, can, it cannot hold us anymore. And that's why I talk about the universal heart. We were never meant to carry the pain of the world with just our small physical, emotional heart. You know, for me, when I've done my grieving, when I've gone through all the stages I can possibly think of, and I've got a sixth stage, I've got the stage yes. of reaching out again into the world. Here I am, brokenhearted, not fixed yet, but I'm here and I'm, I'm feeling my vulnerability and I want to share with you. That, that to me, that stage is important. I was going to ask you about the sixth stage that you um included because elizabeth kubler ross it, this is not just for the dying person but also those who are losing or have lost someone so her stages uh, are denial bargaining anger depression and acceptance and you added a sixth um surrender and so i, I was going to ask you about that and in what way is surrender different than acceptance Mm. You know, Nick, um, we get to a stage where, well, re we, we resign, first of all, to it. It has happened, and there's a depression and resignation. There, there's kind of a hopeless place to be in. I'm just resigned to it. I resign it again. It's happened, and that's it. And then, of course, you have the acceptance that that's the way life is. It can, there's kind of a buildup of, of hope in you that life can go on. And then we start we start things like, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do the other and I'm going to go for, for a holiday. And it's, a, it's almost like we go back into a kind of denial again. I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to do that and we get doing, we get doing. There needs to be a space for surrender. Hmm. And that means you know, I'm in a mystery here and I'm vulnerable after this death of my, my husband or I'm vulnerable after being told I've got cancer or I'm vulnerable. I need space for my heart to settle down. And then surrendering to life means I believe that I am held in love. Mm. I believe it fully that I'm held in love. And I know one day I'll know why that happened. And I can see, but in the meantime, I'm going to surrender to something that's holding all of us in the palms of its hand, if you like, and it's called life in abundance. So surrender for me has been very important because with surrender, there's a kind of, a, to me, it's a completion. I'm surrendering now. I've done the stages. And for me also, of course, with the dying person, there has to be that surrendering into another life. I'm letting go of this one, this, this one's complete. And I'm surrendering into the next stage of my life. And for me also, I see that as a kind of a reaching out into life again, whether it's a new life in another dimension or a new way of looking at life after grief. There is life after grief. I think that's an important 
thing to keep in mind that there is life after grief, you know, that it continues. And I liked how you draw, you know, you're drawing from the Celtic traditions. You also are drawing in terms of nature and the cycles of the seasons. And I think that those cycles feed into this, you know, and it's that the dark, you know, there's the, I think we often think about winter, you know, this period of death is, you know, the end finality, but it's also the place of germination and rebirth happens out of that. Somehow we we're kind of afraid of the dark. Mm. The dark is the boogeyman for, for many people, for children also. And yet, as you say, when we look at nature, the dark is a place of amazing moisture and life. It's a place where we need to be sometimes to get away from the glare of the sun. It can be too much sun. We just need to get away and to get undergrowth and to get into that part of ourselves that can cozy into ourselves in the dark. And I know that I talk a lot about the shadow and alchemy and I love alchemy. Many people talk about the dark night of the soul. I don't believe there is such a thing. Mm. For me, the soul is the healer in me. Mm. This the, the it, absolute, the life force, the healer. And I don't think that that can possibly have a dark night. For me, when I work with my with my shadow, the ego has the dark night. God help it! It has to go through the negredo of alchemy. It has to right. go through all the stages, and then come into this amazing place of surrender and joy. Mm. But uh, the dark is it's such a rich place, according to my Celtic ancestors. Mm. Don't be afraid of the dark. Underneath the dark, the possibility is there for life. Don't right. go into the glare. The glare doesn't give possibility, but the dark is safe, and it does give possibility. It's a kind of a presence. It's a presence in nature anyway, mm -hmm. and the undergrowth. The unconscious, yeah. like the unconscious. Yeah, someone I spoke to recently um, in uh, her book, she noted that 90% of life occurs in darkness. Darkness. Yeah, you know, because yeah. it's the composting aspect, uh, which gives birth and germination, and um, mm -hmm. it, it's necessary. Um, it's absolutely necessary. You know, I, I wish we'd been taught that at school. I wish the nuns had taught me that. But we were told that the dark and the black, that's devil stuff. Don't yeah, believe yeah. that. You know, right. Jesus is all light and bright. And I'm thinking, my goodness, that's a bit glary. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and when we're grieving, we can't go out in the sun. Right. A grieving person can't go out in the sun. Oh, no, yeah. no. It's too bright. And they can't have bright language and they can't have bright colors. It's like we need to go deep into the undergrowth in ourselves, that inner landscape that's safe and warm and dark and not glary. Can't take the glare. No. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, I understand that uh, very well. I went through a period um, in my late 20s where it was sort of a depressive episode and I wore black all the time. And for me, the way I would describe it is I need this because I was connecting it to this, the earth itself, you know, and it's like, I am being held 
in this darkness and I'm not going to reject it, but I'm going to learn the lessons from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. A woman said to me a couple of weeks ago, Phil, it's awful with my daughter. She's wearing black all the time. And I said, of course she is. She's in, she's in that in-between stage of transition. She's mm -hmm. not an adult yet. And she, something in her knows that this is a time to withdraw a little bit from the family and just yeah. be with my... And, you know, that helped her because the mother was thinking she should be out in bright colors. The sun's coming out, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Young yeah. people... Great wisdom too, Nick. Don't yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to ask a bit about the Anam Ira, the mm. soul carer, uh, and also you write about the Shavan. And um, I have a couple of questions. I, I, I'm kind of, I think, looking for some clarity here. The Shavan you identify as like a female shaman. And you also say that it is a saying yes to life. Uh, it's also the wise old woman. Uh, the Anam Ayra is a soul carer. And uh, so my questions are, I should probably ask these just one at a time. <laughs> but I, I was curious, what is the difference between the two? Or are they connected? Okay, the Anam Ayra always works with the dying Okay. She cares for the soul of the dying and she travels with it afterwards. The Shavan mm. does not. Okay. The Shavan, the Sha you see, in my Celtic background, I would never say to anybody, look at, look here, I'm a shaman. Mm. I'm a, sh a shaman. I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. The community calls you that. Mm. The community has to call you into Shavan. But a Shavan is the old woman, the older woman in the community who has lived her life fully. Mm. And you can go to her. The idea is you can go to her and you can ask her questions and sit with her. And she's usually quite sharp. She's very sharp and she doesn't take uh, no for an answer. She's not very nice either. You know, she doesn't <laughs> have to be nice anymore. And I that getting old i don't have to be nice i can just be clear and say that's the way it is you go off and live it but this is the shavan was i remember in my own little town in Ardrandonegal, we had quite a few shavans old women we were afraid of them because they, they looked black and dirty and were, were quite to the point you know that's it no nonsense no nonsense woman that's the shavan but uh, the Anamira has is the woman who watches with the dying. She will sing or chant the old guha, which means soundings, just soundings to help the soul to leave form. I remember with my with my great grandmother sitting with her and hearing sounds coming from her as she sat at the bedside of, of people dying. And she would make great sounds with the hand coming up from the feet through the body. That kind of sounding going on, which was, it was like a mantra without clear words, but definitely sounding. What she was doing, Nick, she was enticing or seducing the soul to leave form and then she, Every so often, she would hover over a part of the body, up not on the body, above the body. And then she would do a kind of a circular movement and an, an anti-circular movement. And then she would get, she would get excited. And then she would go right up to the top of the head. 
and then she would do whoosh, whoosh. soul was gone and you know it wasn't a big deal but i as a young person sitting on the stool in the corner in this house which was mostly made of clay very old houses with a tilly lamp in the corner and a few candles lit and the cat meowing and you could hear the fire crackling up in the big chimney and you could hear the sounds outside of the dog and the sheep and the lambs and inside death was happening amazing i wasn't afraid not at all to me there was something something big going on but i didn't know what it was and so this something big was it was a mystery and i was very reverent about it i didn't move as a child i knew to keep very quiet and so as i had worked then with the dying later on i, I could just automatically do what my great grandmother or my uh, my grandmother had done and it felt natural, and there I knew, ah, ah, got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm here, I've got it. And then I travel afterwards with the dying to the different Acha. I think in the in the Tibetan uh, Book of the Dying, it's called Bardos, I think. Mm -hmm. That's the name. Yes. We, we have the Acha, which is a passageway through which you will, you will move uh, with life, you see, mm -hmm. because we believe that life is not dependent on form of any kind life is there <laughs> and it's not my life anyway it's not my life it's not your life we have for me this amazing privilege of of living a few days in this this tome of life this huge book and what a privilege to to give it the best i can with passion and with joy until that moment when i can say it is finished as jesus said it is finished and thank you i'm away i'm away yeah. <laughs> i'm yeah. home so uh you see it's all it's all a kind of exciting for me and i am 78 years of age getting up getting up on 80 and i'm thinking to myself yes that's the kind of a death i'm going to have and i'm going to have that and i'm going to do this and i love the students all around me and they'll be asking me questions and i'll be saying well this is where i am now <laughs> and this is the next stage <laughs> you can really get it from the dying person's mouth this is the next stage this is what i'm experiencing isn't it exciting and i i'm visualizing that and as i uh, project my thoughts forward i know that's what will be there for me i know that will happen i'm very certain mm -hmm. of that because i project the thoughts every day and thoughts are creative and they're life-giving in their entity so they'll be there mm -hmm. Mm, wonderful yeah and I, I i hope as well to die consciously yes you know i think that that's so important um and one of the reasons i was so excited to speak with you and this is just sharing my own personal experience um you know i referred to my mother and her death was fairly traumatic um and she i ended up having to put her into hospice and before then she developed what is referred to as uh, terminal delirium and we can never determine if it was this process of the dying or if it was process of a result of the chemo uh, but i ended up having to make the decision to put her into hospice and the day that she went into hospice is the last day that she was conscious and so she was comatose the entire time. And I remember asking the 
uh, nurses at the hospice because they were giving her morphine. I'm like, are you keeping her in this stage? Because I didn't want her, you know, I didn't want her to be in pain, but I wanted her to be able to be somewhat conscious. And they told me that, no, that they're giving her a small amount and that other people are able to walk around and have conversations. And it took a long time. At least it seemed like it was forever uh, sitting in the room with my mom. And it occurred to me, it felt to me, and this is the intuition I had, was that somehow she was lost. And I thought at that time that she desperately needed someone who could help guide her. Um, and so when I was reading about the Anamaira um, and the uh, Siobhan, I thought, oh, my mother needed that. She needed someone to help guide her uh, to where she was getting. You know what I want to tell you, Nick? I'm going to tell you that everybody dies their own deaths. Mm. What your mother experienced was right for your mother. Mm. The person lost you. You mm. were the one lost. You see, when we are at that stage, as you, you mentioned, your mother, she's unconscious, blah, blah. We don't see it, but there is an amazing adventure starting. Mm. The moment that, that there is brain death, of course, we know now that the brain doesn't just stop. That's it. Immediately. We take time to die. Mm -hmm. Your mother did not die the moment you thought she was dead. She then started a whole new life, a whole new way of being. The lost part, uh, you mentioned that you felt she was lost. You know, sweetheart, Nick was lost. Mm. The mother was not lost. Because I've learned in the meantime, and this is just in the past 10 years, we all get the death that we need. Maybe not the death that our family would like for us. I know that when people talk about, oh, I wish my mother had had a happy death. And I'll say, what do you mean? But it's your happy death. It's not your mother's. You don't know what the soul of your mother needed to do right. in those last weeks. You don't know. Don't even ask. It's not your business, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Your mother was loved. Mm -hmm. That's all that has that has to be in your consciousness do did i love do i love her in this moment of course you did you loved her into being into being happy into being conscious maybe that's not the story she had come to to live this time in her dying process so i would say give nick a lovely warm hug and say <laughs> nick you know sweetheart my, my mother is all right. My mother yeah. is all right. She had my love in the end. And when you travel with love, you travel safe, mm. even in the dying process. I'm mostly with people who were really agitated at the end, who uh, were going through an awful lot of trajectory and into hell because they believed they were going to hell. I was able to calm them, to be with them, to reassure them. And at the moment, uh, I find even with relatives dying, I'm able to reassure them from a distance. You know, with a Catholic person who's dying, I'll say to them, 
you know, all the stuff that, that now lies in your heart and it's, it's miserable for you. Maybe you're, you were feeling bitter. Maybe there's stuff that's still there that you need to forgive in yourself and let go. Maybe there is. Can you imagine the sacred heart of Jesus coming at this moment, coming down towards you and taking all that misery away so that you can just rest? And he's saying, my peace I give you my peace I leave with you and it's unbelievable it's unbelievable we we feel sometimes you know there's nothing we can do but I want to tell you even now Nick you can speak to your mother mm-hmm. you think her love is gone completely because she's dead oh no you know, no well that that love never dies and it's always available and I would even say to her every day, Mom, you know, I wanted another death for you. I really did. I wanted this, that, and other thing. But this is what you had. Uh, and I, I love you so much. You know, if you could know the energy in those words, because she'll not hear the words, but she'll get the devotion of them. She'll feel that, even when it's years and years afterwards. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah. love sustained her, believe me. That love sustained her. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, that was quite beautiful. And I am very grateful uh, for what you said. Um, yeah, I created a altar uh, for my ancestors. And um, I have a daily ritual now uh, that I do. And both of my parents, they both passed away the same time, uh, same year, at least. Ooh, um, they're in there. Um, grandparents and, uh, I have a genealogy chart, <laughs> so I have uh, all the ancestors, uh, in there. And I, I found that very helpful. And I always like to end my prayer with the recognition that I am because they were, and you know, something, something exciting. They are in you. Yeah. You know, look at your palm. I bet your father had the same lines. Look at your face in the mirror. Yeah. Who do you resemble in your right. family? They're in you. They're, they're living oh, yeah. beings in you. Yeah. And this is beautiful. Yeah. And you've got the altar. Isn't that sweet? Oh, well done. Yeah. Thank you for doing that because that's yeah. honoring them deeply. In, yeah. Your in you. Yeah. When I appreciated that in your book is that you do include some rituals for the family, you know, some suggestions for the family. Uh, And one of them is to create an altar. Um, And it seems to me that providing rituals for the family after someone they love has passed, that that's really important. And it's a necessary part of the grieving process. Absolutely, because they, they now have some kind of input Mm-hmm. And they have and they have control and they can feel responsibility and they can feel that they have given something to the departed. And sometimes an altar can just be, you know, sometimes we have these wonderful, magnificent altars. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking a photograph of the person, mm-hmm. maybe something they loved, a CD that they loved listening to and a candle and just being in that energy of devotion from the heart, that feeling from the heart, how I loved you. Thank you for being in my life. Or thank you for having been my father. Thank you for being my mother. Thank you that all is now healed between us. Thank you for that. Thank go in peace as I will go in peace to have my breakfast or whatever. Yeah. And that beautiful connection 
it, it, it is so important for us. It's so important for the living to have that connection. And a daily, and somebody called me the other day, Nick, and said, Philida, how do I start doing um, a little altar for my father who, who, who died three weeks ago? And I just said, what, what would you like on the altar? What would you like as a memory of your father? Well, she said, I hate to say it, but his socks, put his socks on the altar. Because you know something, Nick, she didn't wash them. You mm. see, we need the smell for a right. while. The right. smell. We need that. We need that deeper soul connection. And you know, she said to me, "I don't think I let anybody see my altar because I have a packet of cigarettes as well." Yeah. And she felt. <laughs> I said, "Put the cigarettes. Put the socks there, and put a little candle if you like. And not if it's not your your way. Don't don't bother with the candle. But but go into silence and mystery in yourself." as you bow in front of the altar and honor your father and honor yourself that you're able to do this, that there is no bitterness in your heart. Honor yourself for that. And there's only love flowing so that when my time comes to die, the energy of my father is there. Maybe he'll be wearing the socks as well, I said to her. <laughs> so we can have a little laugh as well, of course. Yeah. I thought that was precious because I remember one time being in a hospital and they could, this little baby died. I think it was about five or six days old and the mother and father had come to collect and take it home. But they had nothing. You know, this was in the 80s. They had nothing to take home with them. They hadn't the baby. And so I had seen a nurse putting a dirty nappy into an incinerator, which wasn't on at the time. I went quickly and I took it out and I put it into a bag and I gave it, I put it into the bag, the mother's bag. And they told me that for weeks afterwards, both of them would sit at night and cry and smell the nappy. This is what I mean by being natural, touching the heart of one another. That's why we came, to touch each other's heart and to be there in the presence of each other. What would I like to happen? Then let me do that for another. Mm, beautiful. And it seems to me also, I don't want to dwell on my personal stories here, but it, it seems to me that in our, especially in the American culture, that we are very much lacking in rituals and understandings. I think this is changing. Um, there seems to be this emerging idea of uh, uh, death midwives or uh, death doulas. Yes. Yeah. Which I think is very similar to the Ira. Um, the Anamara. Yes. Um, and I think that's really important. And we're starting to see, you know, we've always had Halloween uh, in the Celtic tradition, it's uh, Samhain. Uh, and now we're seeing the, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the Day of the Dead uh, celebrations, I think, that's being right. celebrated more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me, and I think it's necessary, and this is connected to what you were just saying, is that without having these rituals, you know, collective rituals and then individual rituals, that the pain and suffering can get embedded into ancestral lines. Um, and the reason I was thinking of this is that my mother's mother, uh, she had a son and the son was born early. And she always said that the son, that the doctors let her take the baby home too soon. 
And uh, he died within, I think, a month after having come home. And I don't think that my grandmother ever healed from that. And I think that it entered into this, you know, ancestral, <laughs> you know, and so part of what I'm doing is, you know, I'm always doing uh, ancestral work, I think, ancestral karmic work to try to heal. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in Ireland, we, have, we had in the past, I'm thinking the 50s, we had so much alcoholism. And that, that, that really comes down from the ancestors. And there is a ritual we do uh, to release people on the earth from, from that particular addiction. They probably dig up some other addictions, but that one especially, it literally runs through the lines. Yeah. It, it's quite extraordinary in Ireland, in Ireland especially. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what you say is right. We need ritual. We need that we need to to put a mark and say on this day this so and so happened on this day we came together and that witnessing of each other is important really important you know when my when my father died uh, was 1983 we were all there together and the family has to gather together and then tell the stories that's so important sitting down what do you remember about my father about your father that 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 and then you can there's a joy that comes in as well with remembering remembering with joy remembering with love and the tears will come and you hold each other and you cry and you scream and you get angry again all the emotions that need to come up for healing need to happen needs it all needs to happen because otherwise we just get clogged with over emotionalism and as Mm -hmm. elizabeth kubras used to say when people haven't done their grief work they go to eat tea and they cry Mm. whatever it takes you know princess diana died everybody was allowed to cry community Mm. grieving there is a workshop i i i I took at the beginning of um when we had the pandemic it was called rivers of grief where we got the whole community together through through Zoom, and everybody just cried out their grief. Their their parents were dying, their friends were dying. When we don't do that, we become ill. We yeah. become the the body takes on the unfinished business of the of the emotionalism, and I'm sure of that in my own life. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning the ritual. It's so important. It's so important. Yeah, yeah, and I've thought especially again, I can only speak to the US, but uh, speaking of COVID, a lot of people (laughs) began behaving in very unsavory ways in response to COVID. And I often thought that that was a result of unprocessed grief. You look look around, look around and see. Uh, I mean, I see it, well, nearly every week where this... The, the, the after effect in a person when they're carrying this awful grief, their, their body gets rigid, the whole life gets rigid. And there's a, there's, a, a, there's a kind of an anger going on all the time at the world. And there's a rebellion going on inside. And of course, when we start dealing with our grief and allowing the hurt to come out, Elizabeth used to have, we used to have these workshops where people would scream out their pain 
scream it out. We did the same workshops in, in Stockton Prison and, and uh, Peterhead Prison here in Scotland. I was with Elizabeth at the time. And to see these, these big men full of tattoos and uh, I, with a wonderful language, you know, I'll getting the rage out of their bodies because their grandmother, maybe 40 years before that, had beaten them. And that had run through their systems from then on. And they were reenacting the trauma, reenacting the trauma all the time. And then it was the last straw. One man, I said to one man, Jim, are, are you sorry you married your, your wife? And he said, yes, I am. And I thought, oh, he said, it should have been my granny. She was the one that taunted me and shamed me. But my wife did it too. And that was the last straw. I think in schools, really, we should, we should have what I would call a room for releasing anger for children. Mm. I think that will be really important. Very, very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think our schools and our education systems need to address so many things that we're, you know, uh, because right now we're just mostly training students, um, not really educating them. Um, you know, and things like this are important. I, you know, I don't remember ever discussing death so much in school um, until I got to community college and took a class on death and dying. Well, you see, you're doing it now. Yeah. You're doing it now. And, and thank you, really. Thank you, Nick, for doing it. You're keeping a beautiful space open so that people can tune in and, and maybe even someday yourself to, to take a retreat on, on this because you're, you're well-versed in it. You've had the experience and you're the kind of person who can, I can imagine you could just sit in beautiful presence and be quiet and gentle with people who need to release all these emotions. I can see you doing that. Maybe that's your next job, Nick. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Honestly, maybe. why are you doing all this? If it's not to, well, to, to yeah. further it and, you know, and, oh, and, yeah. and work like this with people. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I see that the world is in need of uh, desperate need of healing right now and in a variety of ways. And I'm just exploring the, uh, you know, the spirituality aspect. I think this is important, you know, to deal with uh, the dead and dying. And I've thought about it. I've thought, you know, I need to pursue some kind of spiritual counseling um, aspect and, uh, when I was at the hospice with my mother, um, uh, I, I recognized how valuable uh, to have that uh, for families is. Um, so it's, um, you know, I, and, and I think that we live in a world of grief and that we are processing it. And one of the largest containers, I think, or that's not the correct word, but the environmental issue. Uh, that we're facing. There's so much denial, but that I see that we have to go through the dying process with that as well uh, and to deal with it. Well, I, I see that, especially when I'm, when I'm talking to, to men about grief, I, I, I give a retreat at Christmas time. It's called the prodigal son comes home to himself. Mm. And we look at men and grief and, and, and really I do wish more men would hold retreats for other men and just allow space for them to 
cry their, their, their pain out and to anger their pain out and to have a soft and gentle place so that men can, can look at their emotions. And then when the first three chakras we talk about where our emotions are held, when we bring that into the heart then for feeling, then it becomes a devotion. And that for me, uh, so many men at the moment, they tell me, they say to me, Philida, we don't know how to be in the world anymore. Yeah. Don't yeah. know how to be in the world anymore. And there, there's so much grief under every man's anger. There is grief under every man, woman's grief. There is rage. So we've got to allow the shadows to come through and love yeah. the shadow into the heart. That's what I teach. When I can love my ego, into my heart it'll not play havoc out there or in here because that which is loved can be at peace right 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 yeah that's very very wise and it seems to me going back to something that you said just a little bit ago the what came to my mind was the book of job and the um uh, the scene where job's friends uh, at the very beginning where they you know, track him down and they find him and they just sit with him for seven days and seven nights in silence, because that was the best thing that they could do. And uh, I think that um, I could be incorrect. I think it was uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner who once commented that he thought that was the most moving scene in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. That's beautiful. Well, you see also in the New Testament, when Jesus was very depressed and, and, and a terrible agony and great anxiety about dying, he didn't want to die and he knew he was going to die very soon. But he, he asked his three best buddies, would you please watch with me for one hour? Mm. He didn't want counseling. He didn't want advice. But it's almost like he wanted human flesh beside him to kind of cozy up to him and feel that this the man's energy supporting him just watching with him not saying anything i i often get an image of that of this this dear man this young man you know about to die about to have this awful death and he hasn't even got his friend sitting with him to watch with him. and that's the word he uses in the, in the gospel can you watch one hour with me and if you can do that for another person when they're dying or when they're in an agony or when they're grieving or when they've just lost something important to them, the divorce, sit with me for an hour. I don't want you to advise me. I don't want psychotherapy. Yeah. I don't want right. any of that stuff. I don't want a priest. I just want a human being breathing with me in the same space so that yeah. I know that I know I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah, when my grandfather died, my grandfather died very unexpectedly. And I remember my grandmother, she had me sleep on the floor in the living room um, with her, um, because she just sat in the chair, she couldn't sleep all night, but she just wanted that presence there. You know, that's so it, I, that's it. That's the presence. Uh, uh, Nick, have, have you written any books about it? Oh, no. No, no. I wrote a, a doctoral dissertation, but that was on environmental virtue ethics. No, no, sweetheart. I'm I'm talking about a a book about human about human grieving no. and walking with for men. Please yeah. write it for men. <laughs> what I'm hearing from you yeah. is a, an amazing man with a, with a soul totally alive and a beautiful, beautiful person. Just do it. 
Yeah. Write a book. <laughs> Write a book for man, yeah. watching with man in their agony, whatever. Mm. Because I can't do it. I'm a woman. I can't do yeah. it. Yeah. I'm not supposed to do it for men. They're supposed to find each other in this. Yeah. So there yeah. you are now. Granny yeah. has said. <laughs> Granny, Granny has said. And I am a grandmother. Yeah. Granny has said, do it. And there's no man. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll haunt you. I'll haunt yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was um, uh, one of the publishers I work with. Uh, well, it's in our traditions. And um, uh, that's how I found uh, your work. Uh, I recently received their uh, newsletter, uh, uh, the new, new titles coming out in the fall and the winter. And one of the books is about men's spirituality and kind of uh, kind of reclaiming that and it was so interesting is that it was written by a woman and i think it's been a very long time since we've actually had men writing books uh, the last person i can think of would be robert bly, robert bly. Uh, who wrote a book about you know um or emphasized uh, uh the spiritual journeys of men um so i, I think I, it's something that's needed it's something that's it's needed. needed well if you see that it's needed that's your soul saying to you, Nick, do it. <laughs> As I say, I'll come and haunt you if you don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to be haunted. I think I'm haunted no. enough. Um, but yeah, uh, but I think it's all uh, very, very important. It's all incredibly important work. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it's, you know, we all have to do what we can um, in this moment. You know, the... The thing that, you know, what I always say, I agree with the Buddhists that uh, the first noble truth that they're suffering. And the way that I always phrase it is everyone suffers, everyone's broken, and we all have healing to do, you know, and I think that if we all find our ways um, to help with that healing, uh, that's the best we can do. That's it. You see, I'm, I'm seeing you now sitting in a circle with men. And that's how you start. That's how you begin your, your weekend retreats with an S. That's how you begin. And then you just open up your own life right. and then help the man to open up their lives. And you can cry together and do, do yeah. what's needed together. And you know how to lead them. You know how to guide them because yeah. you've guided yourself and you've been led. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I will... Um... Uh, follow through with that and take your, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't want to disappoint you. <laughs> don't you. Don't you even think of it. No, yeah, there, yeah. there are ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel like I could speak with you for hours on end, uh, Philida. Um, yeah. I, I am so grateful for your wisdom and your presence, uh, your loving presence. Uh, I want to say that. Um, but I know that we are uh, out of time. Uh, but let me ask you uh, just a couple of very quick questions. Uh, one is, what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on next? Well, isn't it interesting that you ask, what am I working on next? You see, if we can change our future by the way we think today, yeah? If we believe what the scientists tell us, that our thoughts are creative entities. And when we project them into tomorrow, blah, 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 we're creating life for ourselves with our thinking. 
So I'm beginning to wonder if I can change the future. Can I also change the past? And how do I do that? How do I create a whole new life for myself? Because the Celts believe that in, in one incarnation, this incarnation, I can incar incarnate again in the same body, but it'll be different because my thought patterns will be different. The healing will have been done. I, I won't have the, so much unfinished business. I will have looked at the shadow. It'll be integrated and love will be... Uh, how I live, I live love, if I can live love. And these thoughts are, are, are sent into the past. Can these thoughts change the past? I'm sure they can. That's what I'm thinking of at the moment. And I'm looking at my Celtic ancestors and I'll look at what they talked about when they, when they said, the future is in your hands. The past is in your hands as long as your heart is open. Hmm. So who knows? Yeah. I'll get in contact with um, Bruce Lipton mm -hmm. and, and Greg Braden, and I'll suggest to them, okay, come on scientists, help me on this one. Right, right. Yeah, that <laughs> reminds me of, um, it's been a while since I've read it and I did interview him a while back, but uh, Eric Wargo uh, mm -hmm. wrote a book. Uh, he's actually got two, one is called Time Loops. And the other one is, um, I don't know if I've had enough coffee to, uh, dream work in the long self. And in that he's looking, uh, he was really looking at precognitive dreams mm -hmm. and he has a model of retro causation where we can actually reach back to our mm -hmm. previous selves, um, and kind of act as guides for ourselves. Yes. I believe, that. you know, when, when I teach people about the inner child stuff, when I, when I was working as a psychotherapist, and I, I, I tried to instill in people that the, that the mother in me has to care for that inner child, you know, for my vulnerability, what have you. So all the time there is a guide in me guiding me in the right way of living. Mm -hmm. Now, if I can, if I can work with my past in this lifetime, I'm talking about past life in this lifetime. If I can be a guardian to myself when I was five years of age, how could that not change what's happened in the meantime? It's a, it's a big story. It's yeah, a huge yeah, story. Yeah, I don't even yeah. can't even I can't even put words in it. I can feel yeah. it. I can see it, and I can believe it. But uh, it has to have the words. Right. Right. Well, the way I described it because it always brings up to my mind um part of um saint augustine's proofs for the existence or excuse me uh, aquinas saint aquinas uh, proof for the existence of god in that god is the prime mover and we often think people think of the prime mover as you know like you have this line of dominoes and it's uh -huh. the person that flicks the first one right so it's at the beginning but aquinas was like no god's at the end drawing us towards him you know kind of like a magnet drawing filings and so maybe that is the way in that the great self you know the individual self is at the end pulling our younger selves towards this fulfillment i believe i totally believe that but for me it's important that i have that i don't have any bitterness left in my heart 
Yeah. It's important yeah. that my shadow has been healed into my mm. soul. It's important that I that I that I don't project my stuff onto other people. Right. When we have that kind of done and 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 we're living more love than we are fear, then why why would of course that's going to change who I am. Yeah. It's, it's going to I know I'm 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 78 now and I have more life and more mm. passion for life mm. and more excitement for life than I had certainly when I was 50, 40, 30. I was, I was dead. I have come alive. So I'm actually mm. in my second incarnation. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm coming to get you on that book. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not finished yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling that's true. Um, mm. So my final question for you, is there a place where people can find out more about you and your work? You see, I don't have a website. Um, my work is mostly by by word of mouth. Okay. And uh, I'm I'm not much good at administration, and um, I just uh, I work from a very natural place that if somebody wants something, I, I try and get it for them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, work. All right. We have a lot of work going on here in Scotland. We we, mm -hmm. we do a lot of work with the the uh, it's called um, teachings from the Cauldron of Bridget, which mm -hmm. I have taught people. We're looking at our Celtic background with death, dying, with living, with birthing, with ritual, with all this stuff. And then I want my students to carry it on. Don't bother me. Then I'm going to give you this. <laughs> You know, right, let right, me right. have my cup of tea. You just get on with it and add to because I think spirituality, it, 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 it has to be evolutionary. It has mm -hmm. to be integral and it has mm -hmm. to be evolutionary. And we have to be able to, to see, to rename the sacred, Nick. Mm -hmm. Rename the sacred in everything. Like the other morning, I was talking to a group of people and, and they were saying the mother had, had been a great singer in the 60s and she sang lovely songs and... And I said, yes, I did sing with her one time in, in the hospital. And you know, this is a time when in the morning, we call them Buha time, when we were singing these beautiful Celtic mantras. And then I said, and I have renamed this song as sacred. And I started singing, you can dance, every dance with the guy who gives you the, and I sang that song. And I think they were amazed, but for me, we just rename the sacred again. What is yeah. the sacred? It's not. It's not the stuff we were told as children. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, when I left the convent, somebody said to me, "Philida, did you find God in the convent?" I said, "No, I didn't find God." But when I left the convent, I I looked into the eyes of a horse and I found God, mm. the compassion and presence and compassion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always find uh, the sacred in the natural world. That's it. Um, you know, and, and I think to, in regards to what you just said, I think another aspect of this is that, and this is something I've come to recently, is mm -hmm. I think that too often people think that they have to follow very set practices uh, for their spirituality. And I think that the key is actually to be authentic, to create your own ceremonies, create your own rituals, do what feels natural to you. Put the socks on the altar. Yeah. And yeah. smell. And yeah. that's, and that's the sacred sense. And those are sacred socks because you have named them so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's actually a pretty good place to end this conversation. <laughs> <With> um, <laughs> <the Holy Spirit. laughs> Horses and socks. Um, 
but uh, Philida, I am so grateful for your time today. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you. Uh, and I hope that at some point we can speak again. I certainly will because I'm coming after you. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get on. I'll get on to the publishers. Don't you worry. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about what I need to write. So um, uh, you've given me a good, uh, push me in a good direction, I think. Ask your, ask your mother. Yeah. Yeah. Ask your yeah. Well, you know, she used to, I always wanted to write and I'll just end with this. My mother was always very supportive of me. And one of the things that she used to do is she would go into bookstores and ask if they had any books by me. <laughs> well, look at yeah so that that was that was her thank that you. was what she wanted got, yeah got the message thank you yeah do yeah. it yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah i will i will yeah. all right well felita thank you again uh this has truly been a wonderful conversation i enjoyed it very much nick bless you and thank you all very right, much all right all right blessings to you as well and that's a wrap on episode 38 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been trying to release new episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate emergency. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.